hppodcraft.com. Statement of Charles Winslow Curtis, M.D. Quite early in the spring of 1949, I was fortunate enough to secure an appointment to the staff of the Dunhill Sanatorium in Santiago, California, as a psychiatric counselor working under the renowned Harrington J. Colby. The appointment was exciting and promising in the extreme, for it is seldom that a doctor as young as myself, the ink, as it were, hardly dry on his diploma, has the opportunity to work under so distinguished a member of the psychiatric profession as Dr. Colby. Those are some exciting beginnings to a story by Lynn Carter called Something in the Moonlight that we are going to be discussing here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you can catch us at hppodcraft.com. Our reader this week is a new standby that we've got, a wonderful human being and a talented individual, Greg Johnson. Yes, Greg, whom I got to meet in the flesh at the Necronomicon in Providence, and his voice speaks volumes about what a great man he is. I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, he's a good guy, and I really enjoyed meeting him and hanging out with him, and glad to have you on the show again, Greg. I want to say we have got a sponsor this week. That's right. One More Story Games is our sponsor for the month of September. One More Story Games is a digital storytelling publisher helping authors create, publish, and share or sell interactive story games with their tool, Story Stylus. It all sounds really awesome. They're they're welcoming creators of all genres. It's at onemorestorygames.com. We'll, of course, link out to it as well as link out to some videos of what their engine looks like, different things that you can explore because they're still in a testing stage. But, Chris, you went in and actually tried this out, didn't you? I did. I think it's super cool. It's nonlinear writing in game form. Yeah. It's more than writing a choose-your-own-adventure book because there are so many different ways to interact. Mm -hmm. This really gives you a new, cool way to write a story. When you tested it, you you weren't writing it, though. You were Because you can play or you can write or you can play these. Things. Exactly. So the draw of this is to go there and play these games, gotcha. which are story games. Mm-hmm. So they're almost like I said, choose your own adventure, but you've got all these different options and ways that you can go. You can choose to follow the story by characters. You can go to a location and try and find a character and talk to that particular character. Mm. But what's cool about it is that you also can create content for it. Mm-hmm. Their engine is set up for you to go in and create your own stories. Once you create those stories, as you put them up on their site, they pay royalties for those stories. Mm-hmm. So it's it's any genre. Typically, the ones that I've seen so far are mysteries. So you're trying to solve a mystery. Uh-huh. But it can be anything, really. One of them is post-apocalyptic world setting. And it, it's, it's really neat. They're right now in alpha. Okay. testing. So it's really early testing, but it's a functioning site. It works. I've gone there. I've played stuff. They're looking for people to come in and play, but more specifically, come in and try and write. They're looking for writers that will help develop content, and they pay royalties for this stuff. And I think they're going to have a writing contest soon. That's right. Yeah, there's going to be a writing contest with $10,000 in cash and prizes that they're giving, giving away for awesome. uh, people doing this stuff. I was excited about it. For me to go through it, I was like, this could be a really fun thing to do. Yeah to you. So I myself am thinking about going in and, and trying to build the stories. And yeah, but it seems like less of a find your fate adventure and more like a role playing game because yeah. you have all these entry points into the stories and you can choose by character and that kind of thing. So pretty innovative. Uh, I know that lots of this type of thing has been tried on the web, but it seems like they've got a pretty good way into getting this to work. Again, it's one more story Please go check it out, play through some of the games. And if you're an emerging or established writer, 
help them out developing some content because I think this is really going to take off. Right now, I think they just landed a, a best-selling author. I haven't announced who it is yet. They did. Um, and, they, and they're bringing on another one as well. So established writers are coming to work on the site. So if you are not established but willing to put in the time, I think now is now's the time to get in there and do it. Absolutely. And again, that's called OneMoreStoryGames.com. We are doing Lynn Carter. I think we told folks before, this is just going to be a grab bag month. Yes, Potpourri. We're going to jump around in that tale. Uh, what's the what's the name of that? What's the name of the book? That we're, Cthulhu uh, Mythos uh, Fun Pack? The Mega Pack. Mega Pack, that's it. We'll link out to it, but you can get it from Amazon. It's very cheap and has tons of stories. 99 cents, I think. Yeah, that's all it is. Lynn Carter is somebody we've never talked about on the show before. No. But is definitely considered a, a giant in the Mythos writers. What do we know about him? Well, uh, Lynn Carter, born Linwood Vrooman Carter. He was born in 1930 in Florida. Mm -hmm. And one of the more interesting things about him, I think, is that he served in the Korean War as Army Infantry. We don't get a lot of veteran writers. Usually people that tend to write are people that don't go out and do things, that they (laughs) sit at home and write about doing things. Ah, We've had some veterans, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly nobody uh, of a more modern war like the Korean War. And after he was in the army, he went and attended Columbia University, mm-hmm. and then he worked as a copywriter for a while, then eventually became a full-time writer. And he got started in the pulps, like most of our people yeah. did. He wrote a story with Dave Foley. It's, I see that in your notes here. Dave, is that Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall? That is not Dave Foley from Kids Aww. in the Hall, because he would have to be like in his 90s. I just thought maybe there was some manservant Hecubus stuff going on in there. No, I wish. <laughs> yeah, but that, okay, so he wrote a story with a guy named Dave Foley, and that was called The Slitherer in the Slime. Right, and he wrote it under the name H.P. Lowcraft. Lowcraft. Yeah, he did a parody of an H.P. Lovecraft story. Okay. Uh, which I'm kind of curious to see what, what that's about. Mm-hmm. But his first novel was called The Wizard of Lemuria, mm-hmm. which he showed to Elsbrogg de Camp in his manuscript form. And de Camp kind of mentored Carter and helped him get the book into print, gotcha. which eventually was Thongor and The Wizard of Lemuria. Mm-hmm. So he's the creator of Thongor. Thongor was sort of a Conan knockoff. Now, I actually read Wizard of Lemuria when I was a kid. Oh, you did? Yeah, my uncle had given me a copy of it, and I knew nothing about it, but I read it. I was a big fan of Tarzan kind of things and John Carter of Mars and a lot of the Edgar Rice Burroughs right. stuff, so it slipped right in there, no problem. And I really loved it. I do admit I thought Lynn Carter was a woman yeah, just because the name was Lynn. And I was like, what a cool lady writing all this uh, barbarian stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I really didn't even know that it was a a man until as an adult. I always thought, oh yeah, Lynn Carter, she's awesome. Yeah, Really liked that book. I don't remember much about it. I got some Thongor comics later as well. Yeah, I got Thongor comics. I don't remember anything about it. How is he different than Conan? Um, I don't really. Is he different than Conan, really? Yeah, the world was a little different. Lynn Carter wrote a lot of Conan stories as well. Actually, he did some posthumous collaborations uh, with Robert E. Howard and uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. Uh, He finished up some of Howard's Cole stuff and some Conan stories that were partially written. And so he got in there and finished them up. So Yeah, sort of like Durlath, where he would look at notes or fragments and try and finish these things. Although I do not think that he published under the names of the authors he was no, doing the collaborations with. I don't think he did that little bit of trickery. Which <laughs> a lot of folks are like, love your show. Glad we made it through, through Durlath month. Don't go back and do that guy again. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. We have released our live show in Providence to our backers, so they've been able to hear it. Yes. Sometime this month, we're going to release it to all of you, and we did cover a Durlath story there. Once you hear that one, you might come back and appreciate <laughs> because <laughs> that story was ridiculous. Highly entertaining, but very comical, I would even say. Exactly. It's, it's pretty, pretty out there. 
But other stuff about Link Carter is that he wrote a lot of Lovecraftian pastiches, mm-hmm. but he was also in this literary club. It was an all-male literary club, which I think is strange that they still had these kind of boys' clubs in the 50s and 60s, called the Trapdoor Spiders, mm-hmm. which had some awesome writers in it, like Elsbrock de Camp, Kenneth Franklin, and Isaac Asimov. Oh, nice. So he was in with those dudes. They were all buddies, and they would sit around and talk literature and writing and, and all that he stuff. He was really well-respected. I mean, I've never heard anybody in the community the last 60 years say anything nasty about Lynn Carter. He was married twice and divorced twice. In 1985, he got oral cancer and had to get extensive surgery that left him disfigured. Mm. The only way he was able to get it paid for was because of his military veteran status. So the, the government covered it, but he would have... Uh, you know, died much sooner. But unfortunately, cancer came back again in, in 1988, and he died at the age of 57, which is pretty young. Yeah, that stinks. That's pretty young. I, I think he had some struggles with alcoholism near the end as well. I, mm. I don't know much about it, but fairly mm-hmm. well documented that he was having trouble writing near the end because I think due to the cancer, possibly he was drinking too much. Let's get into the story. It starts off with this guy, Dr. Charles Winslow Curtis, and he is a psychiatrist, recent graduate of Miskatonic University, and he scored this kick-ass job in California at a very good metal institution. Metal institution? Yeah! (laughs) A very good mental institution. Boo! His boss is this guy, Dr. Colby, who shows him around when he arrives at Mm -hmm. this place, called Dunhill is the name of the institution. He's a real nice guy, very keen on Dr. Curtis because the professors at Miskatonic U gave him big thumbs up, said this guy's awesome. That's his alma mater, of course. Dr. Colby brings up Dr. Curtis's interest in abnormal psychology and says he's got an interesting case that he might be keen on checking out. Mm. And it's this guy, Horby. The institution is really nice. It has gardens and tennis courts and a golf lane for the patients. But there's also this marshy lake behind the property and there are bullfrogs that you can hear croaking all night, which is important to the atmosphere of the story. But Horby himself, why is he such an interesting case? Colby lays it down and says, okay, this Horby guy is afraid of moonlight. Mm. He's so afraid of it that at night he pulls the curtains really tight and he always makes sure that he has like a light on in the room at night. Never goes to sleep in complete darkness. That doesn't seem too crazy to our protagonist. No. No, it's not too crazy. But then Colby says, but check this out. He's also really afraid of lizards. Eh, that's, that's not that big of a deal. No, no, it's just kind of a phobia. People have phobia. It's not really a big thing. And then Colby goes, well, actually, he's afraid of a specific lizard that lives on the moon. (laughs) And then Dr. Curtis is like, okay, I'm interested now. He says, the lizard Mr. Horby fears happens to inhabit the moon. There you go. It is kind of an odd fear to have. Our protagonist, Dr. Mm -hmm. Curtis, he settles in. He's finding that most of the patients are pretty standard. He says the ones I were assigned to were suffering from conditions depressingly common and ordinary. (laughs) (laughs) So they just have normal phobias and normal madnesses, and to him, that's not great. He wants something that's outstanding. So once he gets to meet this Horby character, he's actually very pleased because it's it's kind of odd. Before he meets him, he talks about, hey, I know all about paranoia. This seems to be a a specific thing that he studied quite a bit. Right. And how it's just a projection of this inner conflict to outside forces. What he says, I mean, what do you think about his discussion of what uh, a paranoid actually is? To me, I don't know a lot about psychiatry or or mental health, Mm -hmm. but it seems a little not true to me. It sounds like a science fiction guy writing about psychology. It doesn't necessarily sound like a real psychiatric analysis. Yeah. Or like he's trying to create a non-example of what you're about to see. So it's really just a a literary thing. He says, the outward symptoms of paranoia are remarkably easy to discern. A tendency towards careless, disorderly dress, a neglect of personal cleanliness, rapid and disconnected patterns of speech, eyes that wander to and fro fearfully searching the shadowy corners of the room. Well, wait a minute. Am I 
Am I paranoid? It <laughs> sounds like you're describing me right now. I don't feel paranoid, though. You have the bad personal hygiene. I sure do. <laughs> but all these things, I don't know. They seem... Yeah. If I were going to play a paranoid in a community theater production, this is exactly what I would do. <laughs> and everybody would understand that those are the issues that I have. But just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not after you. True. Which, by the way, I hear quoted all the time and attributed to Kurt Cobain. What? Because he's, it's a lyric from one of his tracks, but it's actually a line from Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Come on, Kurt. Kurt is a, is a very brilliant musician, but he didn't write that line. Uh, back to the story now. Dr. Curtis, he talks about the eyes a lot. Mm-hmm. The eyes are the giveaway of the paranoid schizophrenic. Right. He's talking about crazy eyes. He's talking about crazy eyes. When he gets to finally visit Horby, he sees that the room is actually very tidy, and he's very calm and relaxed, and he's just writing some things on some paper. It's very well organized. Everything in his room is well organized. Yeah. He had the clearest, most candid gaze of any man I have ever met. So has nothing to do with that paranoid that he uh, described at all. So he's like, wait, he believes that there's a lizard on the moon that's trying to get him. Mm -hmm. Yet he doesn't display any of the paranoid symptoms. And he's very, you know, well, uh, welcome to the institution. I've known you were coming for some time. Glad to make your acquaintance. The, The madhouse is somewhat lacking in the amenities, but I'm doing the best I can here. I mean, he's just very... He's like a colleague. He doesn't seem like he's crazy at all. Dr. Curtis goes, okay, I'm really interested in this guy Mm -hmm. now because this isn't making any sense what's happening Mm -hmm. here. So he goes in and he talks to him just over the next few weeks. They're they're very casual at this place. It's not, you don't have these assigned sessions where they have to talk about specific things. Doctor just goes in and kind of talks. Yeah, it says what my contemporaries call, quote, rap sessions. (laughs) (laughs) So he's being like, so the the young people will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, but Hornby is always coherent. Very soft-spoken, very controlled, not, again, your typical paranoid schizophrenic. And also, he's well-educated. He knows a lot about a lot of different things. And finally, Dr. Curtis quits beating around the bush, and he asks him directly, why are you afraid of lizards? He says, hey, look, they ruled the earth before the mammalians rose to take dominance. We replaced them, and they they hate us for it, lizards. As well, they're utterly alien to us. They're vicious. They're cold-blooded. They don't have emotion. And the the fact that the highest order of sentience should reside in such loathsome reptiles, it's more than abhorrent. It is unholy. (laughs) And Curtis is like, well, I always thought they're just kind of working on instinct. Yeah, lizards ain't smart. They's dumb. We talk about that all the time, your lizard brain. It's the part of your brain that operates on instinct and has you doing, you know, the rest of your brain tries to justify what the lizard brain wants to do. But we don't really consider reptiles as being of of high intelligence. But of course, Horby says, well, I take it then you've never encountered the Necronomicon in the range of your studies. Yes. Finally, it gets thrown down. The Mm -hmm. Lovecraftian reference is there. And this, Chad, unfortunately, you spoke about this as being your pet peeve, I think, in the last episode, where there's just endless listing of Lovecraftian books. There's a listing of books in here, and that's a little annoying, but it goes past that even where, (laughs) well, you'll see as we go along here, but it gets more and more annoying to me as as it goes. Yeah, it's Lovecraftian and and Howard, Robert E. Howard stuff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Being name dropped. Like, this is 60% of the story is him name dropping characters and places and creatures. yeah. And gods from either Lovecraft stuff or Howard stuff. It really is. I mean, that's 60% of this. It's a pretty simple story, but it's just full to the brim of references. And that gets pretty boring if you're not in the uh, club. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he kind of gives the cliffs notes on the Necronomicon. Talks about Alhazred, and he documented all these things. Curtis asks him, he goes, well, what, did he know a lot about these reptiles? And he goes, well, he knew more about demonology, really, than reptiles. But it all ties in. 
It's all connected. Yeah, and these reptiles are related to these gods and, and demons that lived on the earth before us that are older than the world and desirous of possessing it. I suppose there's some of that in Lovecraft. Is there? I, I don't think there is. I can't think of there being a specific thing, but maybe it's hinted at that they'll rise and take over again. But to me, it always felt like they'll just destroy everything and move on. But this idea of jealousy is such a... It reminds me of even you know people who refute like the Christian Bible or the Ten Commandments. The fact that there's a commandment in there that says I'm a jealous God. Yeah, is a very human characteristic to be jealous of any. First, it implies there's other gods, right, to be jealous of. But jealousy in and of itself is such a human thing. Yeah, and I never conceptualized these creatures from the Lovecraft mythos as, as having any human characteristics no. at all. I mean, no. I just always assumed these cults would do all their things and then they'd rise up and then. You know, whatever it is, would go, thanks, guys, see you later, off to the stars. You know, they don't give a crap about what's happening down here. They'll either kill kill everybody and move on or... I don't remember any Lovecraft story where the the creatures wanted to take over or their intent was ever explained in any way. Like, you just don't know what the heck they're doing. Like, right. the Migos in Whisper in Darkness, you don't know what they're doing. They don't ever explain. The Yithians, they, tra- they travel through time, but they don't want to take, take over anything. Cthulhu, the cultists just say... He's going to teach us new ways to murder and mm-hmm. and revel. Uh, again, they don't. It doesn't say that Cthulhu is going to rise up and eat everybody. I don't think. But I think this idea that humans are running the world now and these old creatures are going to rise up and take it away from us is a concept that's worked its way into yes what Lovecraft is perceived as. I mean, if you play any of these board games, it's always. Sure. Hurry up because you're going to wake up whomever and they're going to take over the world. And that's kind of what people always say, Whether, especially people who haven't read any of the original Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Their idea is that it's us versus the monsters who want to take over. So it's, it's almost like more like a Godzilla thing or something like well, that. Well, even Insanity uh, in, you know, like the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, that's a huge part of it. But mm-hmm. very rarely do characters go full-blown crazy in a Lovecraft story. They'll faint. Yeah. And that's about it. Yeah, or they'll be in bed for a while because of whatever awful thing happened to them. But uh, yeah, but that's that's it. They don't usually they're usually not locked up and put away. That's all stuff that's come on after the fact of Lovecraft. And I think that well, obviously I know that Lynn Carter was a Lovecraft devotee yeah. and uh, probably got a little derelict mixed in there as well as probably some other authors that were doing sure. prestigious. So. It all kind of gets mixed together. It's fine. It's not something that I had run into before. And I don't think it's very, in, in my opinion, I don't think it's very Lovecraftian. I, I think I these know. creatures, you should just not be able to understand what it is that they're trying to do. Okay, good. Because that's why the central premise of this, and we'll get to what it is, but it's pretty ridiculous in this story. Yeah. So he starts talking about Sarnath. Oh, yeah. No, that was a kind of a weird story to pick up. Mm-hmm. The doom that came to Sarnath, which... I've never read any stories that really touch upon no. that stuff. So it was weird that somebody's pulling on it. And it, he's saying this it's the section in the Necronomicon where Alhazred talks about Sarnath and how there was a race of, in the Great Stone City Ib, there was a race of aquatic non-humans who worshipped the demon Bakrug in the form of a gigantic water lizard. And I was thinking way back to when we covered Sarnath, I seem to remember we really liked the water lizard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. We liked it a lot. So I was happy to see that show up again. And it actually names these aquatic beings. They're known as the Thunha, green-skinned, Batrachian, speechless, so deep one-ish kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And so Dr. Curtis is saying, so it's Bakrug you're afraid of. And he's saying, no, it's not Bakrug. It's what he serves. So Bakrug serves something else. That resides up in the moon. So, So from there, we flip to an extract from Horby's notes. It's, you know, kind of a chapter two. It says, extract from the notes of Uriah Horby. 
has a great opening sentence. Young Dr. Curtis is a likable fellow and keen enough on his work, but a blind, stubbornly ignorant fool nonetheless. <laughs> kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth there, buddy. But he's worried because the hour appointed cometh nigh and time is running out for me. So something's coming for him. He goes into some discussion here at this point. Lots of name dropping. Von Yuntz, Colts de Ghoul, all that stuff. Necronomicon. He's been reading it. He's been trying these different things to try and avert whatever this bad thing is that's coming, but it's not working. And he's getting nervous and the he didn't ever had a full complete version of the necronomicon so there's probably information in there that would help him but he doesn't have it instead he's relying on all these other chants and signs and pentagrams it says <laughs> what remains but the Cheyenne pentagram and the zhao games hmm. so there's some kind of game he's gonna play or something like that. i didn't understand that at all is it like he sets up a checkerboard and that's supposed to prevent the evil from coming after him or? I, I guess maybe it's like uh, playing death and chess oh you mean the monster comes and then they play some chess like that's what the games are for they play some checkers i guess in this version of it right and if he wins a checkers little, then then the monster will go away a little shuffleboard probably lawn darts in the fullness of time a prophet arose among the men of Sarnath by name Kish. This is what Dr. Curtis is saying, Horby related to him. Mm-hmm. Kish is the one that tells him the water thing that the the Sarnathians worship is other than you think. The name Bakrog is but a mask behind which there lurketh an elder horror. So that's what I'm saying. There's this thing that's even worse that's up there on the moon. Yeah. He tells Dr. Curtis, if you ever bother to check up on any of the things I tell you, you'll, you'll find out I'm not inventing any of this stuff. Like the data that I'm quoting for you, it's valid, it's authentic, you can find it in print. Von Jutz was a real German occultist. Everything I'm talking about it exists. Un in Colton. It's yep. a book at the library. Go check it out. I'm not making it up. Which he does. And, you know, he thinks, oh, wow, this stuff is all in print. But who cares? I mean, just because something's in print, it certainly doesn't legitimize it. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's crazy. But all this talk of the Necronomicon, Dr. Curtis says, you know, I remembered from Miskatonic. I think I have heard of this Necronomicon. There was uh, quite a bit written about it in the local papers in connection with some bizarre murder or suicide. Odd that the title of this Arabic book had slipped my mind. And I find that odd, too, if he went to Miskatonic. Yeah, I know. Seems like that's all anybody talks about everywhere all the time. (laughs) Yeah. As we've established on this show. For a book that is so hidden away and secretive, and I mean, it seems like the copies are just floating around everywhere. People love it. So in the chapter four, we get more of Uriah Horby's notes. He's trying all this stuff to protect himself, but he's really frustrated. He doesn't have that Necronomicon passage that he needs. And here's the thing. He doesn't know the name of this creature on the moon. Yeah. And he doesn't know where it resides on the moon. And knowing these two things apparently would be very helpful to him. Just to come up with his counter for whatever bad thing that is about to befall him. Yeah. So he he asked Dr. Curtis, hey, since you have, you know, you went to Miskatonic, maybe you can get the stuff I need from the Necronomicon for me. And when we get into the into five here, the statement of Charles Winslow Curtis, he says, seems like a smart thing to do. Gain his confidence by harmless favors such as this. (laughs) Is that really a smart thing to do? I mean, I'm asking, like, if somebody's a paranoid... Yeah. Does it help to feed into their paranoia? Well, isn't that there's in the whole movie about that? The ninth configuration. That's yes. What it is. Excellent movie and book by uh, William Peter Blatty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that whole thing is about indulging people's delusions and right. schizophrenic behavior. It, like one guy thinks he's Superman, so they treat him just as if he's Superman. And there's another guy in that metal institution. Not in the story. I'm talking about the ninth configuration. Yeah. He's trying to do a production of Hamlet with dogs. Yeah. He's doing an all dog Shakespeare company. Yeah. Everybody's being indulged in their craziness. That's the the treatment method. They're hoping that if they indulge them, that they're going to work through it. So that's possibly what he's doing. Maybe that's what they're doing. I don't know. Again, if that's good psychiatry at all. I have no idea. It's a story. But this gets to my favorite and most preposterous portion of the story. As he says, I, you know, I finally learned the cause of the danger that Horby thinks he's in. 
His nameless enemy, the force behind the demon Bokrug, supposedly became aware of his existence when he rashly published a small monograph, speculating on Sarnath and its doom. What? The town, by the way, seems purely legendary, for it cannot find anything about it in history or archaeology. So he published a little pamphlet, and the great elder thing that lives on the moon heard about it. How did he hear about it? Well, it goes on to say his monograph came to the attention of the cult, which worships the force behind Bokrug, which Uh, is why they and their god are after, quote, quote, after him. Which is just madness to me. Even if the cult finds out about it, what did they do? Did they go do a ritual and go, hey, somebody's talking about you? Yeah. They wrote a book. A few people, like three or four people might pick it up and read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is really dangerous. It's so ridiculous that he attracted the ire of this all-powerful force that lives, so, you know, well, 300,000 miles away. And because of that, you know, he's in trouble. He ain't that powerful, obviously. Right. Well, the best part is Dr. Curtis goes, uh, somehow there is something irresistibly plausible about this fixation. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself unable to refute either it or his logic. It tells me, yes, you are a horrible doctor, and everything that you've been doing is probably bad medicine. So now we cut over to, again, Uriah Hornby. These, mm-hmm. are his, these are his notes that he's taking. This is the 28th. He says, it is horribly close now to the time when the power of the moon waxeth to its height, and that which resides therein will be at its peak of his strength. Not even Cthuga or the flame creatures can aid me then. Cthulhu and the flame creatures. Is he talking about a band? <laughs> yeah. That made me laugh out loud. Not even Cthulhu and the flame creatures can aid me then. No matter how serious you are, the stuff that just came out there is so dumb. Yeah. Can't be taken seriously. All this stuff, he's like, mighty Yithil could stand between me and it, but I've never been to Carcosa or taken the vow before the Elder Throne. Blah, blah, blah. A lot of that nonsense. I mean, paragraphs and paragraphs of it. If this story were a kid, I would bully it. <laughs> and I'm not even, I've never done, you know, I'm not a bully, but I would, I'd knock its books out of its hands, call it names, oh, make it cry. Funny. I was getting so angry at this point. Now we cut back to Charles uh, mm-hmm. Curtis, Dr. Curtis, and he actually went to a buddy of his at Miskatonic, and he went and copied the material for him, and he sent it to him. Yeah. And this was the uh, the passage that he was looking for. But of the great old ones, begotten by Azathoth in the prime, not all came down to this earth. For him who is not to be named lurketh ever on that dark world near Aldebaran in the Hyades, and it was his sons who descended hither in his stead. Likewise, Cthulhu chose for his abode the star Fomalhaut and the fire vampires that serve him. But as for Afum Zah, he descended to this earth and dwelleth yet in his frozen lair. And terrible Volthum, that be brother to black Sathogua, he descended upon dying Mars, which world he chose for his dominion, and he slumbers yet in the deep of Ravormos, neath aeon-crumbled Ignar Vath. And it is written that a day or a night to Volthum is as a thousand years to mortal men. And as for great Namqua, he took for the place of his abiding those cavernous spaces which yawn beneath the moon's crust, and there he abideth yet, wallowing amidst the slimy waves of the black lake of Uboth, in the Stygian darknesses of Nagya. And it was them that serve him, even the Thun Ha, whose leader is Bokrug, that came hither to this world, and dwelt betimes in the grey stone city Ib, in the land of Mnar. No kidding, Greg. Sorry about that. <laughs> but good job getting through it, man. What? What? I'm sorry I fell asleep. What was going on there? I. It's not worth summarizing. <laughs> it's just a bunch of... I mean, there's so much of the story that's just a bunch of that crazy stuff. It's just a bunch of nonsense. So, unfortunately, Horby also needed this thing called the Zoan chant from book 
seven of the Necronomicon, but right. Curtis's contact at Miskatonic wasn't able to provide that. He said it was illegible, so right. he tried to copy it. It just didn't. He couldn't read what it actually said because it so faded. And we cut back to Horby's notes. It's the thirtieth. This is the the night the moon's going to wax highest. Uh, he says, "My spirit's going to be raped from my shuddering flesh in ways I." cringe to think upon and i shall wander upon the black winds that blow between the stars forever so bad things are going to happen but luckily curtis shows up and he's got those bits from the necronomicon we cut back to curtis's perspective Mm -hmm. we see that horby scans them and then he throws back his head ah it's menomqua that's how could i have not known that (laughs) that's the monster that's after me in the place of his imprisonment by the elder gods so he's imprisoned up there well i mean that's the kind of thing that the whole Dareleth stuff is that the great old ones are, are imprisoned by the elder gods. So this is following that. And again, that's in Lovecraft. They're, they're, I don't even say they're in prison. I don't even think Cthulhu's in prison. I think Cthulhu's sleeping. Yeah, he's just taking a nap. When he wakes up, he comes on out. It yeah. doesn't seem to be a problem. So I don't know what this whole imprisoned uh, thing is, but this very common theme that all of the great old ones are imprisoned somewhere. And so this guy is imprisoned in the Blake Lake of Uboth. That's whatever. But he says, wait, wait, where's the Zoan chant, you fool? How can I direct the energies against the Black Lake without the chant? That's what he really needed was that. Right. And Curtis says, sorry, you know, the pages were illegible. Horby's so upset, he says, it, it, looking at him with this unbelievable horror in his eyes, it would have wrung the heart of a stone thing. I mean, this, <laughs> this guy's really in bad shape. But he says, hey, I'm going to leave you to your own devices and go, go to bed. So here's these sections of the Necronomicon. Good luck. So later that night, one of the attendants called and said, hey, I could hear Horby. He's loudly chanting and praying. Mm-hmm. Dr. Curtis says, well, that's, a fi- that's fine. That's yeah. his thing. Give him a sleeping pill. He'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Let him chant. Now, the, remember the frogs at night would croak and make a yeah. lot of noise. But now they're making a lot of noise. They're really, really loud. It's sort of a cacophony. Rise. Of croaking frogs in the background, which is sort of a portent of doom. And Curtis, looking out of his window, catches a glimpse of something moving out of the, the waters that the frogs are in, through the reeds up into the rear, rear lawn. He describes it as something black and huge and wet, moving in the moonlight with a strange, splay-footed, hopping gait. So there's some kind of creature that's emerged out of this thing. Yeah. But uh, then he blinks and rubs his eyes and it's gone. He thinks, oh, it's probably a dog or something. But there's all this slick deposit all over outside, like a slime track left by a garden slug. And then he hears this scream, a horrible, despairing cry. Then everybody freaks out. They run to go check it out. And guess what? Horby. Yes, they, they burst into the room. It's a scene of absolute chaos. The drapes are ripped off the window. The glass is shattered everywhere. Moonlight is pouring coldly, triumphantly through the open window. <laughs> and Horby yeah. is on the ground, dead, yeah. stone dead. Expression on his face is of this insane fear. Curtis says, I hope I never see anything like that again. But there's not a mark on his body. No. The attendant who had been there, who had gone to give him the sleeping pill, had also had some kind of ghastly shock. This is kind of cool. He's incoherent, sitting on the ground, chewing and spitting out the pages from Horby's manuscript and journals. He's just like eating pages and spitting them out. And there's green slime all over the paper, so it's disgusting that he's doing this. What has happened here? demanded Dr. Colby, shaking the male nurse by the shoulder. The fellow peered at him vaguely from a white, wet, working face. Spittle smeared his lips and dribbled down his chin. There was something in the moonlight, hopping across the lawn. He giggled, babbled in a feeble voice. It climbed the wall and broke through the window. It jumped on Mr. Horby. It was like... It was like... Then he began that hideous giggling again. Colby stared at me, shaken. I stared back. God, what a stench! That smell, someone muttered, gagging. 
It was quite true. The whole room reeked of salt seawater gone stagnant and scummed with filth. It was indescribable. What do you think, Curtis? Colby asked me in low tones, out in the hall again. I don't know what to think, I said numbly. Nor do I, he sighed. But this was the night Horby feared, the night his private demon was in full strength. I believe there was something to his story after all. I don't know, sir, I said. But I lied, because I knew Namqua had been revenged. Ever since then, I found myself avoiding the moonlight too. It makes me feel uneasy, and I've been reading the Necronomicon, looking for the Zoan chant, perhaps. I don't know. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, that's where it concludes. <laughs> was he? Was he any more sane than anybody else? I don't think so. I think he was sane. I think everybody in the world of the story is crazy as fuck. <laughs> but just like to crystallize what happens here. Yeah. He published a little bit of a book about who this monster is. And the monster's like, don't be talking about me. And then he came down and sent a little frog creature to, to kill him. Yeah. So it's sort of like in a crime movie or something when, you know, you, you saw too much or maybe you published about the wrong person. Yeah. Like the kingpin. Coming yeah. You if you write a story about him. I was excited to read some Lynn Carter and I'm sure he's got much better stuff than this. He has to. I mean, the guy's written like 25 novels. Right. And people love him. This is probably not a good example. This just happened to be in the Cthulhu mythos fun size. <laughs> the, yeah. The mega pack thing that we're reading from coming out of the Durleth month which a lot of people have asked us to never do again by the way (laughs) it was hopeful that we'd get another mythos writer that would really deliver the goods and i'm sad to say that was not not the case (laughs) but hey that's the way the show goes we pick them we don't know how they're going to turn out uh i want to thank greg johnson for reading and kicking ass he was wonderful amazing and talented as always yes greg thanks so much for coming in and and, uh, delivering all of those crazy words and making it sound like poetry I want people to go over to onemorestorygames.com and check out their story stylist tool, play some of these adventures, and then if you're into it, if you're a writer, if you're a creator, if you're like a game master for a role-playing game, give it a try. Build out your story there. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be amazing when this thing is finally done. Give it a look-see. Yes, there's a lot of people that write and in and they say, hey, I'm starting to experiment with my own fiction and it where's a good place for me to submit it? Well, here it is. So there you go. take the opportunity and be part of One More Story Games. We're going to be linking out to them in our show notes. And, and thanks to them for sponsoring this episode. Sorry, we didn't have a better story for you guys. But uh, <laughs> but hey, you'll, you'll definitely develop better stories on your website. So everybody go check it out. That's all we've got for this week. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.